I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Jaws, the 1975 film screenplay by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb, based on the novel Jaws by Peter Benchley, directed, of course, by Steven Spielberg. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Aran. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello. And Alex Calleros. <laughs> Hi. So the story of doing this film uh, and this video has a, a long history because, you know, Jaws is one of my favorite films, and I've been trying oh to get boy. these guys to do wow. a video about Jaws for <laughs> Lies. <laughs> Lies. <laughs> but no, so in truth, people have been pushing me to do a video on Jaws, particularly Trisha has been vocal about Jaws. Uh, so Trisha, why did you want to talk about Jaws? Jaws is fascinating. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And it is one of those situations where, you know, the, the production was notoriously bad. <laughs> it went very <laughs> badly. And yet it, it came together to be an incredible landmark, just awesome film that really holds up on rewatch. Um, and the script, as it turned out, I mean, they didn't have a proper script or like not a good <laughs> script when they started shooting. But because they went so long in the schedule, they ended up coming up with like a pretty great script. And I thought it was an amazing example of how a team works together or doesn't work together and how that contributes to like the, basically creates the twists and turns of the plot. They are three people on a unified team up against one simple antagonist. It's a really excellent example. You know, it's that classic like man versus nature. But the construction of the team and the way that they interact and their varying backgrounds um, and their egos and how they clash is what makes the entire second half of this interesting and worth watching. I really, really wanted to do a video about the design of supporting characters for that reason. And then you guys just video gamed it, which was not <laughs> what I wanted at all. But I, I am happy with how it turned out. But it was just a completely different approach to the entire thing. So, <laughs> yeah, well, because I remember you you pitching this idea of harmony and dissonance, yeah. and you saying that really resonated with me as that's a clear way to move the plot forward is when you have your team in harmony, mm -hmm. things are working well, but when those same traits are causing conflict, there's dissonance, that's also moving the plot you know, forward in a different way, creating that conflict. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was as we were discussing all of this and how you, you know, different characters have different traits and all this stuff that everyone was kind of just like, not everyone, like, not everyone, everyone, <laughs> but Trisha, was like, this sounds like a video game and, you know, character selection in a video game. And it, it's always, I think it's fun to try to find, you know, uh, references that other people might have a handle on already to help explain an idea. Sure. And ultimately, I think, yeah, we all arrived at this was a, a cool way to use Tirzu, whose channel's all about using video game lingo to explain biology, which is a crazy idea, but also is, is great and super popular. Borrowing that, borrowing him to help get across this idea of how you design your characters as a team matters and will yeah. help you move the plot forward. Yeah, I think it's I think it's useful anytime we can give this sort of either visual or uh, numerical identity to something that sounds like this just general idea in filmmaking. And I think with Casino Royale, I loved when we started working on that video of the opening chase sequence that I, I just said, oh, 
the actual physical distance they are from the <laughs> <Yeah>. ground <laughs> is Freytag's pyramid in the screenwriting. And I thought, what a great way to show anybody, here's the structure of a movie. You can actually literally watch the characters go straight and then up and then down. And then, um, and I think that it's one thing to say, make sure your character has traits or does this or whatever. <laughs> it's another yeah. to say, pick an idea and where does your character actually literally fall on a scale you don't have to actually come up with numbers or, and assign them numbers but it's a helpful way to get people really thinking about about character and what makes characters different and where the uh, the conflict comes from and where the harmony comes from exactly and as a visual person i always just really enjoy seeing these things in kind of a graphic visual format so that's why, why it was so much fun to take tier zoos you know kind of eight bit character ranking uh, stats profile and apply it to these, you know, characters from a 1975 Steven Spielberg film. You know, it was just a really fun uh, kind of remix. And I, I really, it really helped me appreciate this film more because I honestly have not rewatched it over and over again, the same way I've rewatched Jurassic Park or mm-hmm. some other, some other uh, Spielberg classics. And so I didn't really have a deep knowledge of, you know, why, these three characters work so well together and it actually helped me appreciate the film more to see it laid out that way. So yeah, it worked for me uh, as a, (laughs) as a dude who plays video games. Of course, (laughs) I think the thing, especially about jaws is how small the team is. And that's another thing that makes it Mm. a really, really good example of this. You know, we use some other examples in the video of larger teams and like team assemblies. So we referenced oceans 11 and, Mission Impossible movies and uh, Lord of the Rings, a lot Lord of the Rings and <laughs> Ghostbusters. Those things are all thrown in there, but every single one of those teams is larger. And so, if you really are going to chart how the team fits together and works with harmony and dissonance, it becomes a little messier. And I have every confidence that in those movies that we just mentioned, there is a plan, and there's you know the characters are designed with lots of thoughtfulness to have opposing traits as well as traits that are harmonious in the sense that they fill in each other's like gaps in their weaknesses and things like that. But Jaws is such a simplified version of that where it's just these three men. They have one united goal and their their differing traits really pit them against each other. So they have these differences in, in class and they have these differences in backgrounds, um, what they think about technology, as we pointed out, um, where their weaknesses are and where their strengths are. They really clash. They also really fit well together. They're exactly who you need to go after this mission. And so, you know, the characters were wildly changed from the book. (laughs) Not wildly, but they were significantly changed from the book. Quint is probably the one who's most similar um, Mm. from the book to the movie. But just how this movie plays out, there's a reason why this trio is so iconic today. Yeah. Yeah. So the the pitch happened. This idea of harmony and dissonance, I really liked. Everything you were just saying is like, yeah, that sounds good. I don't remember Jaws very much at all either, like Alex. And so <laughs> part of the struggle was getting me to like finally just sit down and like, fine, I'll watch Jaws because I feel like it's one of those movies where I've seen so much of it in you know various behind the scenes, either you know special features or documentaries or a the lifetime of Steven Spielberg and you see stuff. So like I it's one of those I feel like I've spent a bunch of time with, but the actual number of times I've sat and watched it start to finish is very low. And so I went in a little apprehensive. I was gonna like, what's this gonna be? 
And I was just completely <laughs> impressed. Like the shark still looks fake, but it doesn't matter because it the construction of the movie is so good. And it, it's one of those that I was watching and, and it didn't feel like a 1975 movie. It felt mm. timeless. Part of that, I think, is because Richard Dreyfuss's character feels like a modern day <laughs> hipster to me. Like uh, he looks uh, like uh, he walked out yeah. of 2020. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's just it was so good for for all those reasons you were saying, Tricia. And it also helped that I think we did our Jurassic Park podcast while we were working on. Yeah, and definitely. Realizing that like, oh, Jaws was like Jurassic Park training, like all the yep. things that happen in Jurassic mm. Park that are great were first great in Jaws. And Definitely. it was really cool to see Spielberg kind of arriving at those those tools and those techniques so early on. Exactly. I was really struck by just how even in this early era of Spielberg, he was already a master at staging these scenes where mm-hmm. he, he, he uses the frame like so efficiently, uh, you know, the way the characters move through the frame, letting things play out, the blocking is masterful. I was enthralled actually in some ways more with the first half of the film than the second half because he was 26 years old uh, and had uh, made two movies. (laughs) I hate it so much. It's so ridiculous. We were all supposed to be Spielberg. Oh man. Now here we are. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's, you know, every frame of painting has a a million mm -hmm. great videos, obviously, but one of my favorites is the Spielberg winner. Yep. And he yeah. talks about that. And so, I mean, just go watch that video if you haven't. Yeah. But yeah, I, that's I, I remember that video suddenly when there's the long take of getting on the ferry and there, it's just this long shot where they're traveling on the mm-hmm. ferry and the mayor's talking to uh, Brody. Brody. Thank you. Yeah. And just like the masterful, as you were saying, Alex, the blocking and how much that can do when you constrain yourself with we're not going to cut. This is the frame. The frame can move, but this is this is where it's all going to happen. And just watching that ballet of like this person moves here and that person moves there is just so great. And it's it just makes me so happy. It's just it it's just so good. And I wish we did <laughs> more of it. And I think as someone that is a very editor minded, it stresses me out to think of committing to that many mm-hmm. oneers. But it's so effective when it's used intelligently uh, and, and in the right moments for that right effect. Yeah, because they don't feel like oneers in the sense of, right. oh, like time's kind of dragging because they've like decided to do a, this big oneer right now. It, it feels just like a, a, what would normally be shot as like a shot reverse shot mm-hmm. sequence playing out in a single frame. But yeah, the, somehow the tempo, the energy of the scene isn't lost in the fact that it's this one shot. Yeah. And I think it also, it keeps the movie from doing the other end of the spectrum, which is the cut to a character to see how they respond to a thing, which if the character's in frame, I can look at them to see how they respond to something. Mm -hmm. But if you think about comedies or like sitcoms or comedies from the mid nineties, early two thousands, there was always that cut to grandma because she's you know upset about it or whatever and it's like we don't need all that and granted a comedy is a different pacing it's a different style but anytime i see the the wide shot or the one or where spielberg will actually 
it's a couple shots in one shot and he's just moving the right. camera. It becomes another frame. shot. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, anytime I see that used effectively, I think it's just so much more, it's so much more immersive too. I feel more involved with the movie than I do when it's just these suddenly jarring cuts that don't really add anything to, to the scene. I think part of the thing that contributes to this, um, I don't know, the pacing that you're talking about where it doesn't feel like it drags is because Spielberg is not afraid to let other characters speak when even when they're not, it's not the main part of the dialogue. It's not something you even really need to hear, but there's often people like mumbling in the background or mm -hmm. there's com com competing conversations happening. So I think about in Jurassic Park, the sort of like full maturity of that is the scene by the raptor paddock yes. where mm, there's literally yes. two conversations happening at the same time and they're actually both scripted and they're in the mix almost at the same level like at different moments there's one slightly above the other where um hammond is talking to dr sattler about something and then uh grant is talking to um the raptor hunter whose name is Muldoon. Muldoon, thank you. And they're having that conversation simultaneously. It really reminds me of the scene in this movie where the reporters are in the room and the reporters are, you know, everyone's crowded into that tiny space at the police station. And there's multiple conversations going on. Brody is talking to Mayor Vaughn at the front of the room. That woman reporter who is there is talking to somebody else. And the, the thing on the ferry is the same way where they're kind of looking at each other. They're having almost different conversations at the same time. It's that super naturalistic um, approach to directing them. It's like, yeah, you can talk. You would talk to each other in the way that you naturally would. And I think that's one of the things that Jaws does unbelievably well is that mm -hmm. nat like super natural, super grounded style of dialogue delivery. Like these guys are allowed to mumble. They're allowed to talk over each other. Some of the most famous lines in this, like that's some bad hat, Harry, is... <sighs> Not the one you even first hear because it's kind of thrown away by Brody, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think this, oh, we talked about this in Apocalypse Now is how much the 70s had such a real raw feeling in a lot of movies yes. from the 70s. Yes. And I think that Spielberg, Spielberg almost does it too much sometimes. I think it's, I want to say it's Close Encounters or maybe it's E.T. where there's just, there's a scene with a family around the dinner table it's and everyone is it et and everyone is speaking <laughs> it's just everyone is talking at the same time and you can't understand anything right i yeah. think close encounters does it too and jaws yeah. does it plenty so it's definitely what he was going for around that time but yeah you have the overlapping dialogue you have a lot of improvised dialogue which yep. he actually encouraged the actors to do and say you know you know what your scene is you know what your lines are but kind of do your own thing say it however it feels natural on top of that he actually cast a lot of locals from Martha's Vineyard. Yes. So you have people mm. who aren't really actors. And granted, that sometimes can mean you get bad performances, but you just get people who look very real and earthy and don't feel actory and that kind of thing. You know, uh, Roy Scheider has the story about how he was off screen with the uh, the younger son actor mm -hmm. and everything he was doing, the this, the kid would just start imitating and he started making like a growly face and the kid did too. So he just went over and said, Stephen, come here and, and called him over <laughs> and showed him. And he said, great, that's a real beautiful moment. Let's put that in the movie. Mm -hmm. But my favorite thing is the most real raw of the earth 
thing in the movie is the English playwright who plays Quint. Yes. <laughs> Just the uh, the irony that like this this English stage actor <laughs> plays who feels like the Robert most Shaw's has amazing has lived on the island for seven centuries or something. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's like undead. Yeah. If I recall correctly, there was a local fisherman that was there. And of course, they were out at Martha's Vineyard the entire summer, basically shooting this movie. Mm -hmm. And so there was a local fisherman that was there that was so quint in just everything about him that some of the stuff he said off camera, Robert Shaw just like picked it up and was like, I'll be saying that. (laughs) This guy basically is quint and like that kind of stuff. Unless you're really immersed in that, you can't fake it or write it. It just has to spring out of the like culture and place. Hello, listener. If you've heard us talk about Mubi before, the curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe, then you've probably heard us talk about various films we've discovered through Mubi. And maybe you wanted to check it out, but missed the window when that film was featured on Mubi's Now Playing section. Well, I have good news. Mubi recently launched the Mubi Library, a new section allowing members to revisit and discover hundreds of films that have been previously handpicked by their curators. If you're already a member, this is available to you at no additional cost. If you're not a member, there's no better time to join, as there are hundreds of films now available. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Beyond the Screenplay. Once again, that's M-U-B-I dot com slash Beyond the Screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thanks to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Something that's interesting about this idea of overlapping dialogue, how it, how technology I know what you're going to say, Michael, and I think it's interesting. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was waiting for somebody to do something. <laughs> Someone's going to get smart about this. Yeah. Oh, cute, Brian, great. cute. It's been 15 minutes. Brian hasn't been asked anyone yet. <laughs> <laughs> so watching Jaws and liking that and the, the naturalism and the fluidity that it added to the experience, Something I do a lot when when watching a movie is to think about what was happening on set in that moment. Of course. And I'm just thinking about the poor sound recordist who's like, you're doing a one on a ferry uh-huh. and you want me to record <laughs> everything <laughs> or like it, it this this idea of overlapping dialogue also was clearly not intended for use in video essays because it makes it very hard <laughs> to use certain lines when right. other people are shouting over them. Yeah, that was tough. But I think as technology developed, you know, at the time you would have yet yeah, one track of dialogue recording, like maybe two if they're like multiple different places and stuff. And now on films, you know, there's the boom mic, but also every single individual actor has a lavalier mic. So they have the audio tracks from everybody in the scene at all times. And I think that allows for a level of control that I think is just is interesting. And it's interesting that there isn't more of that done because of that. Right. Because I think there are moments in Jaws and probably what, what was able to happen more in Jurassic Park for this reason is when you want the audience to be paying a little bit more attention to this line, you could literally just bring up the volume on that and, and mix the tracks in that way. And so that was just a thought I was having is like, oh, this I want them to have had all these tracks separately so they can mix it just perfectly. It's still great. I love the story about, of course, the most famous line in this, which was famously ad-libbed, you're going to need a bigger boat, Mm -hmm. where Roy Scheider said it and they originally had it, like, he basically said it very quickly after the shark came out of the water, you know, and then 
people screamed in the movie theater. And so no one could hear that line in the movie theater. And so then they like famously spaced it out and was like, okay, let's draw this moment out where he like walked back, give them some time to recover from the shock of the shark and boost that line in the mix. Like they really just turned the volume up on it because they knew it was such a great line that people need to hear it. So there is some consciousness there where obviously Spielberg is controlling the sound. And to the extent that he was able to do that on set, probably very <laughs> little. But, you know, at least in the edit and how the movie end ended, you know, um, they were very conscious of what is being heard and what isn't. That's such an interesting idea also that is kind of only a, a theater experience yeah. thing or, or happens most commonly there anyways. When something happens and the audience reacts, there is often a brief period where they are not taking in new information. And so how and when you play with that, an example that I always think of that isn't a good example, but I think it, it's <laughs> it's the clearest example of, oh, they knew exactly what they were doing is in Star Trek Into Darkness, okay. Star Trek II, uh, the J.J. Mm -hmm. Abrams Star Trek, where... Benedict Cumberbatch reveals finally at the midpoint he turns oh boy, and he's like, he's no, gone. my name is Khan. Pause, <laughs> pause, pause. <laughs> and now we can continue with the scene. And it worked completely in the theater that I was in where everyone was like, Whoa, oh my God, yeah. Were they? O opening night IMAX, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they weren't going, yeah, we figured that out uh, six months ago when he was uh -huh. playing a character named John Harrison. <laughs> like, <laughs> seriously nah, he's he's gone he's gone right anyway but it's it just it's an example of like you can lean too far in that direction too right like when you watch it not in a theater it's just like why did the movie stop for five seconds <laughs> right, right right or it's like watching uh jaws 3d uh, uh -huh. in 2d where suddenly <laughs> it's like someone gets their hand bitten off and you just see a hand floating in the water for the next 15 seconds and it makes no <laughs> sense when you're not watching it in 3d yeah that's an interesting idea and i would be i mean you know into darkness wasn't that long ago i would be interested to know because test screenings are a thing we do them and we movies get changed based on test screenings but I'll be interested to see if that changes at all when movies are no longer getting wide theatrical releases or no theatrical releases. Are we going to change the rhythm of the editing? Are we going to change what test screenings are? Like maybe there's just a much smaller groups of people watching or maybe just watching in their homes. I don't know. I, I would be curious. You know, this movie is heralded um, as being the first big blockbuster. And it, it opened on an insane number of screens for the time period. And so the test screenings were really influential on like how the finished film ended up being. And that model has dominated from 1975 until right now. And I just wonder if that's going to change at all. And, you know, what Jaws whatever the the next Jaws is going to be, which is probably going to be in, you know, five years from now, whatever that's going to look like in terms of are we scaring the audience? Are we making them laugh? If so, does it change how we cut our movie? When you say the next Jaws five years from now, do you mean the next like era defining? Yeah. Like movie that kicks off whatever like this thing is. Whatever the new blockbuster, <laughs> quote unquote, is. Right. Not Jaws 5. Not this time. It's, <laughs> it's even personaler. <laughs> well, speaking of the movie theater experience, I, I was so 
delighted watching it just alone at home and, and but thinking about how it must have been in the theater to watch that first beach scene where oh my god they've they've kept the beach open it's not it's not the fourth of july scene it's the alex kittner scene but the, mm-hmm. the, the way the sound is mixed in that scene where all the kids are playing in the ocean they're just screaming at the top of their lungs yeah so there's these random sudden screams but it's like playful screams and there's like a dog paddling in the water and it, it, the way the sound mix happens in that scene and the way it's cut is such masterful suspense and i i was just so impressed with the construction of that sequence and thinking about how much fun and how tense it would be in a theater for the first time watching that sequence yeah i i it made me realize why this was such a popcorn movie you know way before they get to the big shark attack step at the end yeah it's a horror scene but it's not a normal horror setting which is something i was also really impressed with it's like it's a wide open beach there's tons of people around but because of what the killer is in this situation there's still room like all those things actually add to the tension. And so it was cool. I was thinking about Alien a lot actually while watching it too. Right. Sure. Where it's like, you know, they're very different, but like similar also in in a lot of ways, but, you know, take place in completely different environments and Alien, you know, you're trapped alone on a big thing and there's there's no safety in numbers. There's, you know, and Jaws, it, it's interesting also that kind of as you pointed out earlier, Trisha, at the midpoint, a new movie begins. Yes, it does. And, and right. it's, just, it's like <laughs> it's one of the clearest shifts where the the first half is more horror tense. The monster's going to come kill us. And then the second half is more adventure. We're going out and we're going to tackle this. And it's the team and all that stuff. There's such different halves, mm-hmm. but it works and like the handoff is earned such that you're you're on board so to speak with them and their journey (laughs) there's even like jaunty sea music to send them off from john williams yeah signaling that that change in genre yeah i think that one thing this movie does really well going back to the beach scene you're talking about alex is capture the horror of responsibility yes (laughs) because you're in you're in chief brody's head in that moment yeah right where that like the very fact of the beach being crowded is the horror, right? He did everything that he could to keep people away from the danger. He was not able to keep the beaches closed. And so the the actual like crazy amount of activity that is happening on that beach is horrifying because you know that you can't watch it all at the same time. I mean, I'm not a parent, but I would imagine that's the horror of parenting, right? What it's right. and and of course Brody is a parent and that's he's worried most about his own children and his own family. And so the just complete chaos of that beach scene that he has no control over. It taps into that psychological like I'm supposed to keep this under control. There is no way that I can keep it under control. And so I don't know. It's a really clever, like, psychological idea to tap into when you're putting us in this scene. Why is it scary? It's scary because we are Brody and we know that we can't keep everything contained and keep everyone safe. Right. And you you have two sides of that that really make it effective, one of which is a protagonist who's completely unequipped to deal with the situation. Like he can't stop Absolutely. a shark by itself, by himself. And that's what we get into in the video. Um, 
But on the other side of it, you know, if it's Alien, which was pitched as Jaws in Space, which we of talked course. about in our Alien right. podcast, right. Um, it's, well, they're on a spaceship together. They can't go anywhere. But when it's Jaws, it's all anyone has to do is not go in the water. But and so that's that's the only thing he has to keep them from doing. And guess what? He can't. Yep. And, and partially because the mayor doesn't let him and partially because he just can't run around convincing everyone not to go in the water because maybe there's a shark. And that's how you get a a horror scene that happens in broad daylight is because it's not Jason running through the crowd and then having to run away and hope no one catches up to him. It's, <laughs> you know, it's the shark gets someone and nobody else can do anything. They can't go attack him. They can't, they just swim away and, and hope to survive. So it just, it just makes for a really interesting and unique take on horror that doesn't require containment. It just requires uh, people to not stay inside. <laughs> crowded crowded beaches uh, hashtag 2020 <laughs> to touch on it without touching on it i think it's i appreciate that the movie goes far enough in making me understand where the antagonist is coming from like that's always you know are you talking about vaughn or the shark <laughs> mayor vaughn yeah, yeah. oh sorry oh not, yeah. not the shark <laughs> He was going to say the antagonist being I mean, the shark. I thought you were just going to talk for five minutes about how you understand what it's like to be hungry. The shark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you what it's Sharks like to be, be hungry. Shark. Yeah. I mean, I could. The water. We are not supposed to be in the water. Humans <laughs> should be on the land. The water is where the aliens live. I mean, they really do. The ocean. I forget some comedian, but some comedian was like, the ocean is just constantly throwing people out of it. And we're just constantly <laughs> trying to get back into it. But but Mayor Vaughn, you know, as frustrating as he is, you understand where he's coming from and the decisions that he's making. So it's it doesn't make it okay. You're not on his side. It actually just makes it that much more frustrating where it's like he has his responsibility and his goals. And this is a risk that, you know, one could understand why someone might, you know, lean one way or another. And I think that I appreciated that it it's not just an evil, you know, mustache twirling right. like bad guy. And I think that that adds almost to the psychological dread of it because Definitely. it's like, oh, this could happen. This could be what humans do. And this right. there could be consequences to those things. Economic considerations you know, <laughs> versus health. Like bad guys don't wear pink leisure suits. <laughs> okay. We got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. What, you know, what's so interesting is, uh, so this movie came out in 1975. And then I, I happened to write, when we were starting to talk about this film, I also watched Taxi Driver for the first time, which oh, yeah. came out in 1976. And I was thinking about it. It's like, so this is like the same time period. And so I saw in like two movies back to back, like where Brody came from, which was like the grungy yep. mid 1970s New York. Yep. And then this other world that existed at the exact same time, which was this kind of New England idyllic, you know, resort town. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was that was really fascinating, too, just to think about. I Like Taxi Driver gave me this weird context for like the city where people are coming from and where what Brody's past was and how this is so radically different from his, you know, New York City uh, upbringing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it get, it creates a lot of I mean, we don't need more sympathy for Brody, because like I said, the film so firmly plants us in like why he's there, what his responsibility is. And we are just 
with him from the start. But his background, this goes back to the character design piece, is really important. So like when you see him on the boat and his response is to strap on his revolver, right? Where he's just like, I'm going to get my (laughs) police gun and like shoot the shark with this like handgun essentially over the side of the boat. That's what he knows how to do. And even the politics of navigating this like small town Of course, why would he be able to have, he has no notion of what it is to be in a small town, to have to deal with your neighbors, to have to deal with like the Boy Scouts that are doing their mile swim for the thing over there, right? (laughs) It's just so far beyond the bounds of his experience. And it reminded me a little bit of what we were talking about with A Quiet Place, which is like the design of the character, especially the protagonist, is uniquely disadvantaged, but in some ways perfectly suited to mm-hmm. handle this situation. So, you know, it was interesting. I don't think I wrote the line in the video that we did about this, but it's like, he's the perfect guy. He has none of the skills, but all of the motivation. Mm. And so that's a really smart design principle for a, a protagonist here, um, especially one that is, you know, the situation gets increasingly and increasingly worse as is very, very cleverly done in this. I always think about Frodo as the ultimate example of, course, of Lord of the Rings, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. None of the skills, none of the prerequisites, but all the you know heart and determination to do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's also a good example of setting. And this is, again, kind of just an obvious thing. But I think that's maybe even why it works. But in some ways, of course, a shark attack is only going to happen at a place where there's water, right? Like, sure. And then, but because it's a resort town that like requires the water mm-hmm. to be open. It's the like reason it's, to go there. Yeah. Right. And I think I'm occasionally I see things like that. And I think the first thought can be like, it's not kind of dumb or like kind of obvious, but the way it's, you know, put in the story, it's like, no, it's not dumb. It's the only way it could possibly work. And that's why it works so well and just feels so effortless. Well, it's the Uh, worst place that a giant great white shark could decide to like camp out for the summer. Right. (laughs) It's, it's, It's which is great. Yeah. 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 And I think, too, I like the it's not a major theme in the movie, but it's really wisely observed in terms of like class, if I can put it that way. Mm. You have to get this sense of like financial precariousness of the town where like one bad summer could ruin everything. Right. Like stakes pitching this as this like lower middle class most of the year. This lower middle class town that's like they're fishing, they're blue collar people, they're quint, right? So they they have to be able to have this big summer like thing, this seasonal thing. It's just really smartly observed and really well drawn where the stakes feel real, like you were saying, Michael, for the mayor, because they have to. If the mayor's stakes aren't real, then he's not a formidable antagonist for Brody. And so you have to get the sense, you know, just as Brody is dealing with that horror of his responsibility, Mayor Vaughn is dealing with the horror of his responsibility. And so, it, yeah, it just is the perfect, um, like the puzzle pieces fit together perfectly interlocking in exactly the way that they need to, to create the difficult dilemma. Because that's really what most screenwriting is if, if you're writing conflict. The conflict has to be as difficult as possible. So the pieces have to fit together to make it the worst that it can be. Right. Yeah. Speaking of the worst it could be, should we talk about the making of this movie a little bit? (laughs) Oh, my God. A hundred days over schedule. 
Uh, oh my god, that's stressful. It's like apocalypse now. Days over mm. schedule. <laughs> it's so long, and it's so much. It's and it's like five million dollars. Like it's double the budget, more than double the budget. It's more than like double the production. It's triple the production schedule. What a nightmare. And you're 26 and you're the and director you're of this movie. And you're 26 years old. <laughs> I like how Spielberg has been honest since then. And, and of course, by the way, there's lots of information about there about the production out there about the production of Jaws. There's a making of documentary. There's an amazing podcast about it. You can people have spoken about it at length, so you can check out all of that stuff. But I love how honest Spielberg has been about his own inexperience. And he was like, listen, I insisted that we all go out to Martha's Vineyard and do this whole thing and and wrestle with wind and water and sun. Crew members getting sunburned and heat stroke and windswept. And <laughs> mm-hmm. like, he's like, I, w- I could have just shot it in a tank in North Hollywood, but I was 26 and I didn't know, like, I didn't realize that and know that. And so he learned a lot. And it's what you're saying, Michael, we see the roots of how much he matured during the production of this movie in his other films um and the fact that this movie came together as as with apocalypse now just because it turned out great doesn't mean you should make a movie like this right right for the record i i saw a great quote by him uh in some interview for a making of documentary and he was saying that at that point in my life i was when i was younger i was more courageous or maybe i was just more stupid and so mm-hmm. when I think of Jaws, I think of courage and stupidity and both of those things underwater. <laughs> the, way, the way he summed up his Jaws experience. And both of those things underwater. Yeah. One thing I like about the trials of the movie is obviously the main one is that the shark didn't right. work. Um, and the Thank documentary God that, it didn't work. Right, Thank of God. course. Uh, the documentary that came out in 2005 is called The Shark is Still Working, which is about Jaws itself, but also covers the the actual literal shark too. I think there's two lessons in that. One of which is the one everyone says, which is that things are scarier when you don't see them. And we, and we see that a lot. I've mentioned Silence of the Lambs versus Hannibal, the movie, where it's talking about these things versus we're just going to show you a guy with his head off. And it's like, well, that's not scary anymore. And that's sort of the obvious one that always gets mentioned when it comes to what came out of the shark not working. But I think that the other one is that restraints are often what make art great. Is once mm. you, especially now, degree. when you can do anything, yeah. it's the things that you can't do that sometimes cause the best ideas to come, you know, and you get that from, uh, from the restraints of, of uh, movie structure of, okay, it should be around this length that should have roughly this kind of structure to it. And people say, oh man, movie structure doesn't work. Da, da, da. Like uh, everything is formulaic. And I, I've never heard those people get angry that paintings are in a frame <laughs> right you know or that or that sonnets rhyme like it's just that that is the the thing that is your framework now it's so much more challenging to see what you can do within that framework than it is to just do anything and uh, yeah yeah and the most famous example of this of course from jaws is the barrels like spielberg right. didn't didn't have a shark to shoot so he was like give me those barrels we'll shoot these right. barrels um, the barrels are so upsetting when they come up to the surface, of course. But there's a lot else that that came out of, like we said, all of the problems in the production ended up yielding something that was ultimately better because they ended up having a lot more time to refine the script, which they wouldn't have had before. 
they ended up having to get super creative when they were figuring out ways to shoot the shark because they didn't have a shark to shoot. Um, and, and all kinds of manifestations, especially in the first half of this, but also in the second half of this, of like, I think about the dock, right? Where when the, the shark pulls, those two idiots are out on the dock. <laughs> right. And the shark pulls the dock out. And then it, why would it work this way? It definitely shouldn't. But the two the two um, posts at the end of the dock are going out to sea, and then they turn around and they start <laughs> <laughs> they start getting dragged back in. It's but it's one of the scariest things where, and then you you have that the guy he's um on the sloping edge of the dock that's down right. in the water, and his feet he's trying to claw his way back up. All of that comes out of the constraint of the issue with the shark. So much of the genius of Spielberg was born out of the difficulties of this production. What I think what works about the movie ultimately is that there's still a great payoff at the end. It's not like we never see the shark. Oh, like we get, a, yeah, we get plenty of shark at the end. And mm -hmm. it's kind of, it, I don't think the finale would feel as fun and crazy if we had seen shark the whole time. Um, and there's even, there's some shots of a real great white in that finale. Uh, there's that part where it's kind of thrashing on top of the cage was actually yeah. filmed in Australia with like a mm -hmm. half size cage to make a normal great white look like a giant great white. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember watching the movie and I saw that shot. I'm like, wait a minute, that's a real shark. What the hell? I thought this was all animatronics. Uh, so they, they managed to pull off something special in that finale. And yeah, there are like the extra cheesy shots, but when he's in the shark cage, that, that sequence I think is pretty fantastic and, and holds up because sharks do look weird and sharks, fish and sea animals like don't move in normal ways and like have <laughs> don't have an like, expressive like face they don't have faces really you know so i i do think that the animatronic shark works pretty darn well you know michael's shaking his head about the fish and the a ocean. fish water yeah there we should not be there clearly <laughs> there are things i want to eat us. i remember i remember talking to michael about scuba diving because i i love scuba diving i love the ocean and him just <laughs> like too. being like that's the opposite of anything i would ever <laughs> want to do ever well <laughs> yes. that reminds me alex because we should talk about cooper for a few minutes and about quint mm. um so cooper dies in the book and he dies in the original draft of the script like he goes, so after Quint, no, before Quint gets chomped, Cooper goes into the water and he's supposed to die and get killed by the shark. Um, they had that amazing footage from Australia where the shark attacked the cage, but nobody was in the cage. And so Spielberg was like, we got to use this. Let's just say Hooper like escaped and he like swam away. Right. And so then we can use this amazing footage of this great white attacking this empty cage. But I think I it's the right call. Yeah, I don't want to see Richard Dreyfuss die. <laughs> it's Richard Dreyfuss. Well, not that, not that version of him. What version of Richard Dreyfuss do you there's, want? There's like, what about Bob Richard Dreyfuss? He's, he's played. <laughs> oh, but he's just like great. He's played. Too, he's played like crappy people before. Like he's not always yeah, the likable hipster. Yeah, the same as Richard Dreyfuss. I don't know. I just <laughs> like him. I miss him. I wish he was in more things. I mean, it, it is a little convenient that after everyone's gone and Brody has to take care of the shark by himself suddenly hooper shows up and hey i'm still here i mean he had he had, he had his scuba tank on if i were him i would have just hid down in the kelp as well i would have, uh -huh. <laughs> i would stay out of the way and it's a good thing the shark really wanted to keep attacking the person up on the boat and right. not the person in the right. water All right. <laughs> he came he camouflaged with like the seabed <laughs> well but i think hooper's survival does a lot to create that rich thematic argument i guess that we could i mean this is not 
in anywhere close to the Jurassic Park level of rich thematic argument, because this is very much like a man versus nature kind of thing, like I said. But when you have Hooper and Quint, who are on these really opposite sides in terms of their respect for nature and how they relate to it, I think if you have them both get equally chomped, it says something totally different than if Cooper, who loves sharks and really respects them and is trying to kill the shark in a more humane way, potentially, if he also gets chomped, it really changes kind of like where we land with this movie. Sure. Um, and so I think that character development or that character design would almost feel not paid off or it would be more of an example of like bathos that we've talked about where you build something up and then steal it away. If if Hooper were to die at the end of this, his companionship with Brody, where we like them together, we think they make good friends, they have great enough conflict, but they still like are helping each other and are willing to work together. If all of that buildup of Ho- Hooper being the first um, ally that's introduced and Hooper, you know, relating to Brody's family a little bit more, there's an embracing technology, embracing the future. It sort of contributes all of this stuff to like, where now the thematic reading of it means something totally different than it did than it would if it went the other way. I feel like it would like solidify that sharks are evil. Right. And <laughs> right. I feel like it's not right. quite quite at that level. Like the shark also ruined a friendship. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been a beautiful friendship like the end of Casablanca and Matt. Right. <laughs> it, it's kind of Casablanca. It's very yeah. Casablanca. I love, I love the, the the very ending there. Yeah. yeah. Um some like it hot. Yeah. Mm. The the mm-hmm. final the final exchange between the two. Yeah. yeah. Just going off into the sunset. Yeah. Um and yeah, I just I really like all three of these characters are three-dimensional. They feel lived in. The performances are amazing. Again, there's many, many reasons why as a trio, we remember them all almost equally. They're large enough personalities and the way that they work together is very compelling. What Spielberg says is his favorite scene in the movie, which is Quint's speech about, uh, you know, the sharks in World War II uh, when his his boat sank. I remember my dad always referencing that scene, like mm-hmm. even when I hadn't seen the movie yet when I was a kid and maybe even after I'd seen it just once, but I forgot it. Like he would bring that scene up a lot of just talking, you know, the doll's eyes, you know, talking about the shark's eyes. You know, the thing about a shark is he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. Exactly. I knew you had a quit. I knew you had a quit impression in there. He's got everybody impression in there. You get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. (laughs) So one thing I I heard on this making of was that uh, Robert Shaw was a big drinker and often drinking like between takes on set like constantly yep so like they did that scene twice and like for one of the like times they shot it he was actually super drunk uh-huh. and, and like and so like part of his performance in that scene he's like almost blackout drunk and then other shots he's not quite and apparently you can like see his eyes are more glassy in some shots than others but some of that delivery was like he like didn't even remember doing the performance because right. he was so drunk well, you know, the thing about a drunk is he's got glassy eyes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like a doll's eyes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's a kind of a tragic character in this movie. Like Definitely. Yeah, Robert Shaw, not Quint, but Robert Shaw is kind of a tragic <laughs> character in this movie where he was he died a year later. He mm-hmm. was he didn't he didn't make any money on this movie. He didn't really have much money. He basically mm. said he hadn't enjoyed making a movie in 
15 years or 20 years or something from Russia with love. Yeah. It was, so it's just, uh, it's just unfortunate that this was sort of, I mean, what a way to go out to, to leave behind this character, obviously, but it's just unfortunate to, to know that someone was that unhappy during, during film. Not that he was unhappy necessarily every day on filming, but just in, yeah. in life, you know, if you're yeah. drinking mm-hmm. constantly, there's probably something. Not I sure. mean, everybody well. was unhappy every day of filming. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> right. Sure, right. So, and like they, they, these guys were seasick for so much of this time oh, when they were out on the Orca. Mm, so like the uh, amazing scene. And, and to me, it's um, it's one of Roy Scheider's best moments in it. But after Quint smashes the radio and Roy Scheider just and uh, Brody just comes back at him and is like, that's great. That's just great. And completely loses his cool. Like two seconds after Spielberg said cut, like Roy Scheider just leaned over and vomited like mm. because he was so <laughs> ill. During, it's just very hellish. Um, again, going back to Apocalypse Now, there's a reason we don't make movies like this right. anymore. <laughs> Why are all these people making movies in the hardest possible ways? I mean, it does Although, look, it looks really amazing though because there are some incredible. really beautiful shots of the of the ship at sea during sunset and these wide vistas and you you wouldn't have that in a backlot. I love how Spielberg was, they had like guys in a, um, in like a motorboat or a speedboat and they would just like send them to pay off whoever was sailing into their shot. So like a sailboat would like come across the horizon and he'd be like, go get that guy a hundred bucks. And they would like send the boat over there and give that guy a hundred bucks to move his sailboat because Spielberg was so obsessed with having those wide open vistas with mm. no other ships anywhere on them. Well, and he, so, and he, was, he was saying that sometimes it would take like, an hour or like hours for the ship to like finish crossing the frame in the back. So like it just everything yeah, shooting at sea sounds so horrible. <laughs> Completely terrible. But it, I mean, again, we have the movie that we have today. Thank God. I, <laughs> I don't, don't recommend. We weren't part of the production so we can be happy about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and Verna Fields, I want to, sh- talk about Verna Fields for a few minutes who who put this movie together in the edit like mm. god bless because if you read the script it's a mess like even though they did refine it and refine it the script is nowhere close to the movie that we have and like they would shoot and shoot and she was working just with the footage that they were able to get and so was Spielberg and they were just kind of as you were saying Brian let's plow ahead and put together a movie in whatever way we can and shoot whatever it is that we can in the meantime. Mm -hmm. I found out her house was where they shot the head coming out of the boat. Uh Uh-huh. That shot, they actually shot it in her pool. In her pool (laughs) in Van Nuys. And I used to live in Van Nuys and I looked up her house and it's like a mile from where I used to live. Shooting at sea, all that sounds exhausting. Because again, I I think... Someone had to be like, okay, everyone's ready to throw up, but the cameras are so roll camera. And then for like, you know, 30 seconds, everyone has to be like on top of their game and then cut and then go back to the horribleness. (laughs) Or even in the edit, we're like, how do you edit this movie when you're literally cutting and pasting? Like that still blows my mind that editing was that manual. Uh, (laughs) Right. So yeah, it it is extremely impressive that we have these films. Mm Mm-hmm. And people went through the things that they went through. And, you know, I'm sure sure people did that on movies that aren't great and that we don't still remember. Right. But it also delivered some of the greatest films, which which I can now acknowledge Jaws is. Thank you so much. Nice. We did it. They delivered the bum. 
Hiroshima bum. <laughs> and we absolutely would not have the movie that we have without John Williams. That also has to be oh, right. named right. here. Can we just press once again the John Williams' cheat code button? Yeah. Right. This was the original John Williams cheat code. Like, he had done a couple movies before this, but this was the one that really kickstarted his career. And of course, Spielberg's career. It's one of the most iconic scores of all time. I was thinking back about that uh, to that scene on the beach where the camera's underwater. Everyone is screaming. The children are screaming. Everyone's kicking and splashing. And what we hear are those two notes and nothing else played on a tuba. Why would they be played on a tuba? Like it's Sharks are really into tubas. <laughs> it's that minimalist approach that creates that sense of dread. And when so much other like sound and Spielberg is very consciously trying to overwhelm us with all of the chaos to go super minimalist and quiet on the score and have it creeping under and creeping under. It's just, it's such a genius move. And I, I love that. And then I also love the adventure, as you were saying, Alex, the adventure time, like pirate score that's in the second <laughs> half of this, where they're just like, we're hunting a shark now. Mm -hmm. The barrel scene, it's like, it's almost like from a different movie, it feels ba -da -dum, ba -da -da. like. Yeah. <laughs> I saw yep. this um, at the Hollywood Bowl with the L.A. Phil, which I've mentioned three times on the podcast. Literally, the only three movies I've seen were Empire Strikes Back, Jurassic Park, and Jaws in that context. And the, Jaws is a weird one because you have those moments of music that you remember so well. And then you have lots of moments where there's no music and then the music comes in slowly and you're just engrossed in the film and you forget there's a symphony playing it. And suddenly mm -hmm. you look down and you're going, oh, wow, this music is live. But the music sometimes is so subtle for a movie where the music is thought of to be so bombastic and in your face, it's really not for most of the movie in a, in a very effective way. And I think that simplicity allows you to just quickly associate it with the meaning that it needs to have. Where exactly. When you hear these two notes, it means shark coming. And like once that has been established, you can then use it over and over again to create that amazing effect. And you can use it to mess with your audience. So now we're yeah. expecting to hear mm -hmm. it. And then in the most like most terrifying moments when the shark appears, there's no music and it just comes out of the depths of the water, which it's that primal horror of something attacking you from a place where you can't see it until it's basically on top of you. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> it's such a fascinating jump scare because it doesn't do any of the jump scare things. Yeah. Like it doesn't bring down the sound with then a like crazy punctuation. Like when Richard Dreyfus sees the bloated head in the boat and there's like a Halloween film scream. Like, scream. It, it sounds like when you like step on one of those cheap like Halloween doormats that like lets off a scream. It sounds like that sound effect. Like <laughs> Where it's just clearly this is here to scare you. But no, like the shark just like comes out and then like the soundtrack doesn't do anything, doesn't react. Mess with the yeah, but it's still uh yeah, it's still really, really scary. Yeah. Um, I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember where I was. I mean, I was eight years old when I saw it, and um, which is maybe is maybe too young. Uh That's pretty for, young for Jaws. But there's something so perfect about the structure of it, too, which we don't have to spend a ton of time talking about. But just like you were pointing out, it's a very clear shift at a midpoint. It's this nice build of exposition and into the beginning of the second act. It has that like hero's journey, like perfect structure kind of thing. And then it builds to the most satisfying climax 
imaginable, which was also really, it's different than the book, of course, and it's different than the original script. Spielberg was like, well, what if this shark exploded? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's such a ridiculous thing, too. Like, that's what makes it so impressive that it works so well, is that it is, it actually earns the satisfaction of, I don't want to see them just kill the shark. I want to see them make the shark explode. It feels like, yeah, obviously you have to. You know, it's like the shark is so unkillable in so many different ways. Yeah. Like, it does earn it. they they struggle so much that it does feel like the only way to really stop this thing is to actually explode it from the inside. That's the the only way. I I mean, I remember where I was when I saw this shark explode and where I was when I saw the Death Star explode for the first time. I would say Mm. those are on par, like satisfying. Interesting. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was in my (laughs) living room in the special edition they should make sure they add rings coming out of the shark when he explodes <laughs> yes, yes. so it's shockwave rings yeah, right better so it's more realistic yeah <laughs> but yeah it's it's a perfect structure and so it there's a reason why this has become so prototypical right it was a high concept movie it was a the first blockbuster and it was perfectly structured and the script turned out to be I don't know. Do I want to call it a perfect script? I'm not sure about that, but it it turned out to be the story that needed telling and, you know, well, well put together. So they they tried for years to make this movie over and over again. Right. I do feel like my only complaint about it structurally is I I do think it drags a bit in the second half, you know, in a a way, Mm. you know, I, I think, I think it could have been trimmed down a little bit and been a tighter, like it wouldn't have been as, as like equal as far as like where the midpoint lands. But I think, their adventure at sea could have been tightened. Because uh, I, I feel like everything in the first half, I wouldn't cut a thing out. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe it's just part of the difficulty of filming at sea. It just feels different because this is what they got, you know. Um, mm. But that's that's my one. It's it's why it doesn't have the same place in my heart as like a Jurassic Park. It, there's something about that second half where I do zone out a little bit for some periods. Hmm. As of this recording, there are currently 344 patrons for Beyond the Screenplay, and we want to thank each and every one of you for making this podcast possible. We've recently added some new perks to our Patreon that give us new opportunities to connect with you guys. Our $2 tier gives you access to a monthly patron-exclusive bonus episode. This is where you can find our episodes on Pirates of the Caribbean, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and Scott Pilgrim. Our new $5 tier gives you access to a monthly live Q&A, where we answer questions and share our thoughts on topics submitted by our patrons. Finally, our $10 tier gives you access to our monthly film club video chat. This is where we all get on a video chat with you and other patrons around the world. Everyone gets to share their thoughts on the film of the month, and we all get to hang out and talk about movies. So if you were considering becoming a patron, now is a great time. There are these fun new perks, And you'll also be helping us get closer to our goal of 500 patrons, at which point we'll do a three-part series on The Lord of the Rings. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes, or you can simply go to patreon.com slash beyond the screenplay. And now, back to the episode. The funny thing is, both Jurassic Park and Jaws are within two minutes of each other lengthwise. Interesting. but I noticed it when I, when I put on Jurassic Park, when we were watching it uh, for our podcast, was that they're both two hours and four or six minutes, which is just a length no movie is, weirdly. Like, every movie yeah. is 
just under two hours, like 145 to 155, somewhere in there, or it's two hours, 20 minutes, two and a half hours, right. something like that. Right. And for some reason, it just struck me when I put it on. I just thought I'm not used to seeing that timestamp come up when I start a movie <laughs> that it's That's like just over two hours. Uh, so they're actually very close to um, uh, time wise, but obviously Jurassic Park, you have so much going on right. in in the second two acts of the movie in a way that Jaws is you can only have so much going on with three characters right. and, a, and a shark and barrels and barrels. Yeah. Part of me, because I felt that too, but part of me wonders also if I was sitting in a theater in 1975, would I feel that or would this right. feel like an epic where, you know, it's the fourth act of The Dark Knight where, wait, oh, wait, there's there's this movie now also? Like, it's not just a horror movie. Now we're on a sea adventure. Like, maybe, you know, that had some kind of novelty or created a an, a sense of unexpected storytelling that maybe propelled uh, an audience back then further than it might today. Yeah, maybe. Conjecture. But. I don't know. This this actually has something to do with my lesson. So are we almost at lesson part? We are exactly at lesson part. Okay. Trisha, <laughs> why don't you tell us what lesson you're taking away from Jaws? So my lesson about this is obviously related to what we talked about in the video. But one thing I think this movie is a great example of is having enough twists and turns. Because... I've been reading a lot of screenplays lately, and one of the things I've been noticing is there's not enough plot. Like, I think that we have perhaps there's been a trend in slowing down or um, letting characters talk or sort of just like letting and maybe that's not even a trend. But some of the scripts that I've been reading just don't have enough plot in them. There's not enough twists and turns. And I think the thing about Jaws and some of these older model um, of films, something like Star Wars, say, or some of these other big archetypal films, not something like Apocalypse Now, but (laughs) (laughs) one of a kind, you just have to have enough reversals where you're moving in a direction and then you get blocked and you're moving in a direction and then you get blocked. And so we were talking about as we were working on the video for this, this model of like two steps forward and one step back. Every scene basically has to be one of those two things. It either has to be a step forward or it has to be a step back. But that in itself is plot. And so even if you are, you have cleverly designed characters that are introducing conflict, the conflict has to be big enough to be considered plot. And so when, and that was the thing that originally drew me to Jaws, when Brody and Hooper and Quint are working together, the plot is moving. They are moving toward their goal in concrete, noticeable, measurable steps. They get another barrel into him, right? They are getting closer and closer to catching him. When they are not working together, they are getting further away from catching him. Where the ship starts sinking, they burn the engine out, whatever it is. There has to be noticeable, measurable plot, even if it's just three characters on a boat. And so there's enough plot in this movie and there's not more than you need. I I don't know. It's just a really, really smartly designed. No scene is wasted. Every scene is plot. This thing happens. They are going to catch the shark, or it seems like they're going to catch the shark. Then something blocks them. They have to make a different plan. Every scene is plot, basically. Yeah, and I think there's like an efficiency to that, obviously. It's kind of what you're saying. But I think what I'm 
what I'm thinking about as I'm listening to that is that I, I think there can be a tendency to want to have like character scenes and character development and like a conversation where they're talking about things that'll then set up the next thing that's going to happen. And I, I think those need to be happening at the same time. Like the plot needs to be character and character needs to be plot. And so that's hard, but I think there's, I feel like that's maybe a trend I've noticed is that leaning too much toward the like, well, plot is bad. I don't want, you know, that I want yeah, like I just want characters. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. But the Indianapolis scene is the example of that. Where it's a critical character reveal. We absolutely need it. And, and it reveals so much about everybody that's in it, where Hooper mm-hmm. is sitting there and he's talking about his own life experiences, which are dramatically different than Quince, of course. And he and Quint are swapping scar stories. Brody's just kind of off in the corner where he feels like he's not really a part of this thing. Then we get this incredible backstory character reveal from Quint. And two seconds later, the shark rams the boat. Like, <laughs> right. it's right. that level of efficiency where you're not having a scene that's only doing character work or only doing plot. All the plot is also doing character work and all the character work scenes are driving forward the plot. And that's an exceptional scene, right? Like not every scene is someone monologuing for two minutes about a thing and then something else happening. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying it's very instructive. Word. Awesome. Alex? I think I say this often, but I just really appreciate Spielberg's commitment to the horror uh, of this movie, you know, because it it has the John Williams score. It has the the jaunty fun elements as well so there, there could be a more sanitized version of jaws uh that's a little more kid friendly but it opens with this really grisly scene you don't see any gore but the way this woman is screaming in the water and being oh, like yeah. dragged around for like a long period of time before she finally goes under really sets this the tone right up front of just like no like it's very painful to die from a shark attack it might take a long time and it's just like really, really, really horrible. It's not like it still upsets me so much when I watch it. Right. I've seen it probably 20 times and I'm still <laughs> horrified by it. It's not like a quick, it's not a quick, clean, just like surprise death. It's like a long, drawn out ordeal, um, which is probably more accurate to what happens when an animal slowly eats you. Um, so, but nature's great and we should go in the water all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta play it safe over there, Michael. <laughs> And same with the commitment to uh, the Alex Kittner scene where it's like literally a torn up raft with blood on it. And then you see a mother like screaming for her son for a little while. Like it's really it's not uh, sugarcoating it at all. It's really horrific. And I, I really appreciate that because it it makes the enemy that much scarier because you're not in like the safe movie land of like oh it's a fun shark movie with like fun deaths and fun adventure it's like no like this is very terrifying actually and the shark killing anybody else is going to be terrifying not necessarily even fun um so i respect to spielberg for going that direction and the scene where mrs kittner confronts brody is one of the most yeah, gut-wrenching scenes in movie history as far as I'm concerned. I love that casting of that mom. Like, Oh, she's mm-hmm. wonderful. She, she looks so authentic and just looks just Lee like... Lee Fierro is her yeah. name. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the, the shark is still working. They talk about how she would just get asked to slap people for the rest of her life. So she, she's, <laughs> I can't tell you how many people I've slapped because they came up and asked me to. And I just well, read this story 
where she went to a restaurant and she was looking at the menu and they had the Alex Kintner sandwich. <gasps> and she what? said, yeah. And she was oh. like, this is weird. And she, she talked to the server and said, and said, hey, uh, I, I see you have this thing on your menu. I actually played his mom in the movie. And the waiter <gasps> said, I'll, I'll be right back. And the restaurant owner runs out and it's Jeffrey Voorhees who played Alex, who was oh the owner God. of the restaurant. <laughs> and they hadn't seen each other since the filming. So it's a happy ending. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's alive. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Brian, what's your lesson? Yeah, so um, on our Jurassic Park podcast, I talked about Jaws and Jurassic Park and Rocky, how with all those movies, the sequels sort of take the high concept thing and just drill down on that. And there's sort of more actiony, gimmicky stuff and less actual story. And watching this documentary, The Shark is Still Working, there was all this focus on how scary the movie was. Uh, the, the trailer had Percy Rodriguez, who did a lot of trailer voices back then. He said, uh, it's as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was watching it and people were talking about how scared they were in the theater and how terrified they were to go in the water afterwards. And I thought, I forgot Jaws was a horror movie, like, mm-hmm. or, or that right. it was even thought of, partially because we've been spending so much time talking about the character interactions and everything. And then I remembered I was scared as a kid. I also saw it when I was pretty young. Uh, I, I think my babysitter had it on in the house and had the entire franchise on. So I saw four Jaws movies in one day when I was eight or nine or something. <laughs> and I was literally worried a shark was going to come through the window of my second story bedroom. <laughs> like sure. It was just going to show up. Right. And of right. course, being in a pool whenever you're in the deep end and there's just sort of it, there's an expanse that you're not used to having yes. where you just can't quite see in the distance. Even playing Super Mario 64, there's this very cute, what are they, like Loch Ness Monster type thing. And it's very cute. But I remember being under the water in the game and looking at it and going, oh, it's weird that, I, that it's a big thing above me in the water. There's something unsettling about it. But I think the lesson here is that the movie stops being a horror movie because you're not, you, you're not scared by it anymore once you've seen it a trillion times. But when your stories and characters are compelling, they become just as iconic Mm-hmm. as the the genre elements of your story yeah um, and you right. get that from the story being interesting you get that from these three-dimensional characters as we've been talking about you know how easy would it have been for hooper to be a super nerd constantly pushing up his glasses and for quint to be just very negative and joyless all the time but they're not all these characters have this fluidity and this dimensionality to them i think when you think about the all three of those movies that i mentioned the most half of the most iconic moments come from that gimmicky thing it's oh the shark coming out of the water or it's the first time you see the t-rex but the other half don't the other half are just these great lines Mm -hmm. or character moments or story beats um and some of them may come out of of the high concept you know the uh the jello shaking or (laughs) or you're gonna need a bigger boat but they're that's not what makes them interesting what makes them interesting is how well made the movie is and how well crafted the characters are yeah i'll just say as a child uh there was definitely like so we have a we had a pool here at my parents house in arizona and there was definitely like a game that we played with my dad where like so he would like surprise go underwater and stick his hand up like a shark yeah fin. yeah uh-huh. and my brother and i we were little kids we would just scream and like get out of the pool because it was like the shark is here like it did not take much for the imagination to be like you have to get out of the pool right now because the shark right. is here like it was so iconic and i will i mean of course 
this movie destroyed beach attendance in 1975. <laughs> like, it, it honestly fell through the floor. And I mean, can you blame anybody? And conservationists, of course, were right. bemoaning this right. movie. Like, that is that is a yeah. real negative side effect. Is like sharks right. don't actually kill many people ever. And no, they it, don't. It really gave them a bad name, which is. I not mean, but deserved. they are horrifying. I mean, it's what Michael's <laughs> been trying to convince us of the whole time that oceans are the home of monsters, which they are. <laughs> That's but I they cannot don't... have said it better myself. <laughs> the ocean is the home of monsters. They don't actively like kill people the way that Jaws makes you think they do. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they don't see people on top of a pier and think, I'm going to wreck this whole pier so that I can knock this one human into the water. Right. Yeah, Brian, your lesson kind of ties into my lesson, which is about tone. And I think I've, in general, been trying to wrap my head around tone and what are the elements that like directly create it and Mm. what, trying to robot it, basically. Like, what is tone? How do you like pull it (laughs) apart and see all all, all the pieces of it? Stay tuned for our video about tone when we figure it out. Right. Kind of like you were saying, Brian, like I had the opposite thing happen where I forgot that Jaws was a lot of fun to watch. Mm. And I think that's another kind of Spielberg hallmark is that you go and see a Spielberg film and it has the spectrum of tone where it's terrifying and scary and disturbing, but also super fun. And it's a family like evening out and there's goofy things happening and you know minority report there's going to be people's eyes rolling on the ground and weird dark places where someone's experimenting and putting sandwiches i don't know minority report (laughs) is weird but there's also you know tom cruise lands from jumping out of a car into a yoga place where he's upside down so like not (laughs) that's probably not like the best example but just (laughs) spielberg example like that you can have all of that in a movie and i think that's Something that is, I miss. Like, yeah, it's, it's really special about Spielberg. You know, yeah, it, it, there's something really. You feel like you're getting a well-rounded film experience when you go to see one of his big movies. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, it's like a whole, whole thing that you've been through by the end, and it's I don't know, it's really great. So like, I feel like you, yeah. you have to have awesome. those laugh moments, and and we've talked to death about dynamics, but you have to have those laugh moments to disarm the audience and so you know Carl Gottlieb here they brought him on to rewrite Benchley's script and Gottlieb is a comedy writer and like you know Spielberg thought maybe he can just like punch it up and add a couple and then he basically rewrote the whole thing and kind of leaned more into some of those they're not goofy but they're the sort of like the those moments of levity where I think about like Richard Dreyfus going like yelling at the guys on the boat and he's like haha they're all gonna die like <laughs> right. That, right. <laughs> that tone playful yeah yeah cool why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently brian do you want to start us off sure uh before i get into mine i just want to echo one that you mentioned michael which i saw in the theater um if beale street could talk mm. uh, i just watched it again uh the other night and it's just a beautiful movie i loved it even more the second time and it it's can be upsetting to watch right now but it can also be very yeah beautiful to watch right now um very different in tone. I watched Eagle versus Shark. Uh, wow. Nice. <laughs> Taika Waititi's first film. Uh, it stars Jermaine Clement and Lauren Horsley, who co-wrote the story and who is 
so awesome in the movie and i can't believe that she is not uh, a megastar it's basically taika's version of napoleon dynamite like it really feels like he watched that and said i can do that <laughs> like especially jermaine clement's character and performance he literally uses nunchucks in the movie it's just wow. napoleon dynamite it also co-stars rachel house who I is was gonna ask if it was rachel house yeah i love her so much topaz in ragnarok and she's she's mm-hmm. in almost all of taika's movies but yeah it feels it feels sort of bottle rocket rushmore like early west Anderson and but you also get these glimpses of the the Tychoness, uh that would mm-hmm. come out in his later movies and uh, it's just a it's just a weird enjoyable watch awesome nice I remember watching that because I knew Jermaine from Flight of the Concords and I was mm-hmm. like oh he's in a movie and yeah it's a quirky weird fun 2007 indie film I, I enjoyed it awesome Trisha what are you watching I have been on a kick of like late 80s, early 90s, bad erotic thrillers. Um, <laughs> I feel like you have a new kick every week. So weird. They're so specific. Right. It's impossible to guess what they're going to be. So, okay, yes. 80s and 90s erotic thrillers. Okay, so <laughs> the 80s and the 90s were a time of great erotic thrillers. They were also a time of very bad erotic thrillers. <laughs> so because everybody was making erotic thrillers during this time, there's you can find like a bad erotic thriller with basically any actor that you like. So, for example, I've watched DOA with Dennis Quaid um, from 1988. I watched Sea of Love with Al Pacino and John Goodman from 1989. I watched Consenting Adults, which is, um, <laughs> oh, God, it's really bad. Kevin Klein and Kevin Spacey from 1992. Body of Evidence with Madonna and Willem Dafoe from 1993. And then the worst of them all, which is the one I'm here to talk about, Color of Night with Bruce Willis from 1994. Bruce Willis, Jane March, Leslie Ann Warren, Brad Dorff, and Lance Henriksen. Oh my God, it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. So Bruce Willis plays a colorblind psychologist. Well, he's he's a psychologist who loses his ability to see color when one of his patients, sorry spoilers, jumps out a window and in the middle of a therapy session and then there he like sees her red blood all over the ground and it like messes him up and then suddenly he can't see red for the rest of the movie. Um What? Yes. But here's the thing about this movie Color of Night. It's directed by Richard Richard Rush who's not a bad director, but this movie is so damn all over the place when it comes to tone, where it's incredibly graphic sex scenes. There's like insane car chase sequences in it that are just like straight bad action movie. Bruce Willis comes to LA and he like takes over this therapy group with these weird people with multiple personalities that are like funny, but it's honestly like it should be a cult classic. It's one of the most terrible movies ever. Please go watch Color of Night. <laughs> Please go. Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis is um, 39 in the movie. Like, that's how old he actually was. And his love interest in it, Jane March, was 21 years old in it. And they have no chemistry. And they're just naked for so much of it. It's <laughs> unbelievably painful to watch. It's wild. I feel like you're, uh, you're kind of selling me on watching this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literally, I will watch it. 
with any of you at any point, it is, I'm kind of obsessed with it now. All right, so, let's make this a cult classic. I mean, you should watch all the ones, all the bad erotic thrillers that I just mentioned, but Color of Night is sort of the pinnacle of it in my book. Just did an IMDb search for Jane March, and she was in a movie called Blood of Beasts, which I feel like is the most successful Lord of the Rings poster <laughs> ripoff I've ever seen. Oh like for God. a moment, I was like, wait, was she in Lord of the Rings? No, I mean, she was in clearly, Blood of the Beast. Yeah. Yikes. Wow. Okay, cool. Anyway, if that's your jam, you're welcome. Excellent. <laughs> Alex, what have you been watching? Mine is much more conventional. Um, uh, my husband and I binged the Apple TV Plus limited series Defending Jacob last week. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which is uh, the limited drama series uh, starring Chris Evans with a beard and Michelle Dockery <laughs> and Jaden Martell playing their son. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's it's based on a novel. It's a crime thriller. It's about essentially like an assistant DA's son being charged with murder. Uh, and it's it's basically just a really juicy, unsettling, you know, crime drama. You know, it, it's it it it's basically if you're down for that and just want kind of a nice dark juicy ride for eight episodes, you know, with the nice chapter cliffhangers with each episode, it's it's a good ride and. Bearded Chris Evans being shot very beautifully, dark, you know, dark, beautiful cinematography. <laughs> uh, Chris Evans. Uh, so yeah, you should watch it. <laughs> Wait, is Chris Evans in it? Hang yes, on. and he has a beard. No, no, no. Yeah, bearded Whoa. Chris Evans is in it. The guy from Endgame, not the guy from yes, yeah. Endgame. Chris Evans in our thumbnail. Chris Evans. <laughs> there or you Infinity go. War. Infinity War. Chris Evans, technically, because there's a whole shaving scene in Endgame. Because it's like. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, what are you watching? I've been watching periodically, kind of every weekend uh, during breakfast. Uh, my girlfriend and I watch an episode from Explained, which is a Netflix series by Vox. And so it's kind of an extension of, if oh, you know, yeah. Vox, the YouTube channel. They have a Netflix series where they do like 15 to 20 minute explainers on a topic. And so sometimes it's, you know, the stock market or income inequality or animals and like here are all the reasons we we've been studying animals the wrong way and like are they smart or are they not smart and like are we dumb for thinking they're not smart like it goes into kind of like you know they set up an argument and they kind of explore both sides of it recently we watched one on music and it was a very weird experience because you know it's an explainer video it's talking about you know what is music when does a sound become music but i had this experience where like almost as soon as they started talking about it i became really emotional and i spent the whole 20 minutes trying not to cry whoa and like i can't even really articulate why but the the episode goes into what parts of the brain does an animal need to have to understand music and so it looks at different animals that can maybe keep rhythm or it can identify like tones and and stuff and so there's other animals that have pieces of what music is but music as we know it is a uniquely human thing, or at least seems to be. Mm. And it's also so deeply tied to so many parts of the brain. And that's why it's so, you know, every culture has invented music. It's part of our daily lives. It affects our emotions in all these deep ways. And so it was kind of, it's, it's technical, but it, they also do a good job of tapping into the emotion. And I think it was just nice to see a, like, this is what, like, a good thing about humanity, just like a purely good thing that is unique to humans and makes it feel like we're, I don't know, we're not just destroying the planet. We're not just causing problems. Like we can create this thing that is music, that is universal and that is beautiful. 
and it gets into like all the like nerdy details of that which i also love so uh yeah the the box explained episode on music was a surprisingly moving little detour out of reality that like helped give me hope again so i think it's perfect Aww. that like vox explained is the formats with which, <laughs> which with which to like prove to michael that like humans are like worth you know like like it, it, it helps to have the vox explained kind of details there to be like no scientifically humans are worth saving maybe it's extremely yeah. on brand for you michael. yeah thank you thank you this has been our conversation on Jaws. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to the patrons for supporting the show and making it possible. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Farewell and adieu to you, fair Spanish lady. <laughs> Bye. Bye.